Welcome to the Corona of Thorns podcast. I'm Father Peter Zwans, and today is the fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Grant us, Lord our God, that we may honour you with all our mind, and love everyone in truth of heart. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the prophet Jeremiah. In the days of Josiah, the word of the Lord was addressed to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you came to birth, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as prophet to the nations, so now brace yourself for action. Stand up and tell them all I command you. Do not be dismayed at their presence, or in their presence I will make you dismayed. I, for my part, today will make you into a forfeited city, a pillar of iron and a wall of bronze, to confront all this land, the kings of Judah, its princes, its priests, and the country people. They will fight against you, but shall not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you. It is the Lord who speaks. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I will sing of your salvation. I will sing of your salvation. In you, O Lord, I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your justice, rescue me, free me, pay heed to me, and save me. I will sing of your salvation. Be a rock where I can take refuge, a mighty stronghold to save me. For you are my rock, my stronghold. Free me from the hand of the wicked. I will sing of your salvation. It is you, O Lord, who are my hope. My trust, O Lord, since my youth. On you I have leaned from my birth. From my mother's womb you have been my help. I will sing of your salvation. My lips will tell of your justice and day by day of your help. O God, you have taught me from my youth and I proclaim your wonders still. I will sing of your salvation. A reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. Be ambitious for the high gifts, and I am going to show you a way that is better than any of them. If I have all the eloquence of men or of angels, but speak without love, I am simply a gong booming or a cymbal clashing. If I have a gift of prophecy, understanding all the mysteries there are, and knowing everything, and if I have faith in all its fullness, to move mountains, but without love, then I am nothing at all. If I give away all that I possess, piece by piece, and even if I let them take my body to burn it, but am without love, it will do me no good whatever. Love is always patient and kind. It is never jealous. Love is never boastful or conceited. It is never rude or selfish. It does not take offense and is not resentful. Love takes no pleasure in other people's sins, but delights in the truth. It is always ready to excuse, to trust, 
to hope, and to endure whatever comes. Love does not come to an end, but if there are gifts of prophecy, the time will come when they must fail, or the gift of languages, it will not continue forever. And knowledge, for this too, the time will come when it must fail. For our knowledge is imperfect, and our prophesying is imperfect, but once perfection comes, all imperfect things will disappear. When I was a child, I used to talk like a child, and think like a child, and argue like a child, but now I am a man. All childish ways are put behind me. Now we are seeing a dim reflection in a mirror, but then we shall be seen face to face. And the knowledge that I have now is imperfect, but then I shall know as fully as I am known. In short, there are three things that last, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alleluia, alleluia. The Lord sent me to bring good news to the poor and freedom to the prisoners. Alleluia. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus began to speak in the synagogue. This text is being fulfilled today, even as you listen. And he won the approval of all. And they were astonished by the gracious words that came from his lips. They said, This is Joseph's son, surely. But he replied, No doubt you will quote me the saying, Physician, heal yourself, and tell me, We have heard all that happened in Capernaum. Do the same here in your own countryside. And he went on, I tell you solemnly, no prophet is ever accepted in his own country. There were many widows in Israel, I can assure you, on Elijah's day when heaven remained shut for three years and six months, and a great famine raged throughout the land. But Elijah was not sent to any of these. He was sent to a widow at Zarephath, a Sidonian town. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many lepers in Israel, but none of these was cured except the Syrian Naaman. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They sprang to their feet and hustled him out of the town, and they took him up to the brow of the hill their town was built on, intending to throw him down the cliff, but he slipped through the crowd and walked away. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel that we've heard today comes directly after the passage which was read at Mass last Sunday. So if you remember, last week we heard Luke's account of Jesus standing up in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord has been given to me, for he has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives and to the blind new sight, to set the downtrodden free and to proclaim the Lord's year of favour. Now, Jesus is clearly appropriating to himself the mission of the much-expected Messiah prophesied by Isaiah and the other prophets. And he says to the listeners in the synagogue at Nazareth, he says, this text is being fulfilled today, even as you listen. And that's where we pick it up today, right? And, and Luke, he adds that lovely little detail that, all eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
It seems implicit that everyone in Nazareth has come to the same sort of conclusion, that their fellow villager, the kid who grew up down the street, the carpenter who apprenticed under his father, the son of Mary and Joseph, that he's claiming that he is the one and that the prophecies are coming to fulfilment in him. So last week, we heard about the initial reaction from Jesus' neighbours. It's a kind of silent stupor as they all stare at Jesus, taking his place back in the congregation of the synagogue. But at this point, we see that there are two different reactions once the people of Nazareth start to process the full impact of what's being proclaimed to them. On the one hand, we hear that he won the approval of all, and they were astonished by the gracious words that came from his lips. But then, after a short discourse from Jesus, we see the mood take a very swift turn. We read, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They sprang to their feet and hustled him out of the town, and they took him up to the brow of the hill their town was built on, intending to throw him down the cliff. A far cry from he won the approval of all and they were astonished by his gracious words. At a certain level, I suppose it's difficult for us to put ourselves in the shoes of the Nazarenes, you know, Jesus' contemporaries. We're so accustomed to hearing Jesus referred to as Lord and the Son of God. But Jesus' neighbours didn't know him as the Christ but as the carpenter. Not as the saviour, but as the guy down the road. By all means, a nice guy, but certainly not Jesus Christ, universal king. Jesus himself poses a problem for the people of Nazareth. Because here, he's preaching with authority and he's preaching something that is new. Jesus, who is neither priest, nor Pharisee, nor Sadducee, is telling the people that he is the fulfilment of the prophecies. Indeed, for the people of Nazareth, Jesus is a scandal, a stumbling block. How can this man proclaim the words of grace? He's Joseph's son. He grew up alongside of us. How is it possible that he who shares our history could now speak with such authority? Confronted with the scandal of this seeming impossibility, the Nazarenes are left with two alternatives. You either reject Jesus or you believe. This scandal of Jesus isn't something that's merely limited to the Nazarenes, though. Jesus has been a problem for people for nearly 2,000 years now. This scandal of Jesus has continued among us since then because we too are left with Jesus of Nazareth who defies our ordinary human categories. He's both fully God and fully man. He's a human being who commands the almighty power of God. Just like the Nazarenes, we're left scratching our heads. How is this possible? Since for the rest of us, it's entirely impossible. 
The problem that we have is an echo of the scandal of the good people of Nazareth. The scandal is that using our historical and philosophical reason, we can't insert Jesus into the ordinary possibilities of human reality. You know, one of the fathers of the church from the 4th century was St. Hilary of Poitiers. And uh, in one of his works, he describes the scandal of Jesus very well. He points out that human reason, with its usual categories, is incapable of understanding the divine designs. But so often we hold that only those things which fall within the limits of our understanding are those things which belong to reality. If we cannot understand something, then it must not be real. So this is the challenge for the Nazarenes in the Gospel. They're presented with Jesus, their friend and neighbour, and now he blitzes those categories. He's not merely friend or merely neighbour. He's now also Messiah. He's also God. And this now appears beyond the possibility of human reason, beyond our understanding. But you know, this is the same challenge for us too. We're also presented with Jesus, who St. Thomas confesses is my Lord and my God. And I can't see how this fits within the possibilities of human reality. I, I can't understand merely with human reason what it means for Jesus to be both fully God and fully man. Yet, there he is. Jesus is a tremendous scandal and a challenge to human reason. And so there are a couple of things we can do if we can't bear the scandal. We can reject Jesus, like so many Nazarenes, who seek to expel him from their midst by eliminating him from their company. Then there's a great temptation to take the sting out of the scandal and to reduce Jesus to categories that we do understand. He's not God. He's a prophet, or a magician, or he's a philosopher, a teacher, a great figure of human history. The temptation is that we shape Jesus of Nazareth so that he fits neatly into our box, our understanding. It's the temptation to domesticate Jesus, to tame him so that he will follow us rather than us follow him. So in the face of the scandal of Jesus of Nazareth, there's one other resolution, and it's the response of faith. It's the act of faith that enables us to see in Jesus not only the son of Joseph, but also the son of God. And God himself. St. John the Apostle understood this act of faith well. Have a listen to how he begins his first letter. He says this. Something which has existed since the beginning, that we have heard, that we have seen with our own eyes, that we have touched with our own hands, the word who is life. This is our subject. John is able to hold together the Jesus who he sees and touches with the word who existed in the beginning, 
And here is the very heart of Christian faith. That we don't try to explain away the reality that Jesus is indeed God, the Word made flesh. But that he is in fact the eternal Word and became flesh. In one particular place, in one particular time, in one particular person, Jesus. Those who can't resolve the tension of this great scandal of God being in one place at one time, well, they metaphorically have to throw Christ off the cliff and eliminate him from their presence. The response of the Christian, however, is not to limit reality merely to that which fits into my mind but rather to see that it is in fact our understanding that has its limits. And so faith doesn't believe things that are unreasonable or irrational. Faith believes something that goes beyond the limits of reason, in which God himself has revealed so that we might know and love him. This is what we mean by mystery. When we enter into the mystery of who Jesus Christ is, we don't run away from the scandal, but we look upon Jesus, the son of Joseph, knowing that at the same time he is Lord, Christ, only begotten Son of God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, consubstantial with the Father. It's the beauty of the mystery that captures the believer and enables us, like the Nazarenes in the synagogue, to keep our eyes fixed on him in sheer astonishment as we marvel at the works accomplished by God that are even beyond our comprehension. Thanks for praying with us, and may God bless you abundantly, so that this day may give glory to God the Father.